This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, we are going to talk a little bit now about consciousness, about hallucination, some really interesting projects that are taking place in the UK and how we can benefit from knowing more about this. Joining me now is Anil Seth, British Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, also the author of Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's such an interesting uh, study that you're working on now and the the studies that have taken place in the UK. Can you talk a little bit about consciousness, about hallucination and what you're actually looking at there? Absolutely. And consciousness is still, it's one of the biggest remaining mysteries in, in science and philosophy, at least I think so. And it's also a mystery that matters. I mean, the brain is this incredibly complex biological object. It's got 86 billion neurons and a thousand times more connections. It's incredibly complex. And one of the things it does is create experience. We, we intuitively all know what consciousness is. It, what, it's what we lose when we fall into a dreamless sleep or we'll go under general anesthesia. And it's what comes back when we wake up again or, or come around again. It's what makes us more than mere biological objects and quite how brains and bodies create or are identical to consciousness is one of the oldest questions. But the exciting thing at the moment in the last few years, last 10 or 20 years, is that a lot of progress is being made. We don't have the answer, but I think we're getting closer to understanding, unlocking one of these last mysteries of of biology. And one of the things that's part of that is understanding the nature of perception. When we open our eyes, it just seems to us that the world pours itself into our minds through the transparent windows of our eyes and our ears. As it says, you know, we just take it for granted. We open our eyes and there it is, the world. But what's really happening under the hood in our brains is that the brain is always making best guesses about what's going on out there and using sensory data, all the light that comes into the eyes and the sound that comes into the ears, to calibrate, to keep the brain's best guesses tuned to the environment. And that's what we perceive and it's really counterintuitive. We experience the world not in this kind of reading out of the world direction from the outside in, but from the inside out. We actively generate our experiences. And when that process goes a little bit off the rails, that's what happens in hallucination, when our brain's predictions lose their grip on reality in a way that doesn't normally happen. And you uh, were part of this big study in uh, various cities in the UK. Uh, I think it was uh, around 40,000 people went into something called the dream machine. Can you explain a little bit how that worked? It was, yeah, I mean, this was such uh, a wonderful project to be part of. It was a project that I worked on with architects and musicians and philosophers, as well as other neuroscientists. And it was a way of really highlighting the thousands of 40,000, as you said, the power of the brain to generate experience. And it's based on what's actually quite an old finding in neuroscience and in art, which is that if you sit in front of a bright flickering light with your eyes closed, and it has to be very strong, it has to be the right frequencies, then people, pretty much everybody, will have surprisingly vivid and powerful visual and indeed emotional experiences. And they seem to come from within for most people. And there's, there's still one of the things we're doing in the lab is really trying to understand quite how and why this happens. But 
my intuitive idea about what's going on is that the brain is kind of experiencing itself. You know, your eyes are closed, but it's being activated. And so the brain is, to some extent, experiencing itself. But when people are in it, they, a number of things happen. Firstly, everybody has a different experience, which is remarkable because they're in exactly the same environment. And in the dream machine, 20 or 30 people at a time would go through this experience. And then when they come out, it's, it, people often find it deeply affecting. They, they, it makes it very clear that all of their experiences are really dependent on their, on their own brains. It brings a lot of these lessons really home in, in the first person. So we try to make this experience as, as widely accessible as possible. And through some funding, we were able to bring it to four cities in the UK and indeed to 40,000 people, which was way above what I've ever expected to be able to do. And is is that something too, as far as what how we're understanding the brain and how that works? In that, when we talk about hallucinations, generally, I think there's an idea that it's related to drugs or some kind of stimulant other than just light. That's right. So that's a very common association that you know you have hallucinations if you take psychedelics or some other drug, um, or that it's a condition that that is associated with with mental illness, like schizophrenia or something like that. But I think the truth is that all of our experiences are kinds of hallucinations that I like to call normal perception, just the here and now as all the people listening are experiencing the world in perhaps the way they always do. It's a kind of hallucination, but it's a controlled hallucination in which the brain's best guesses are geared to reality, tuned to reality in ways that are useful. But there's a very, there's a very fine line between what we normally think of as perception and what we actually comes a society to call hallucinations. It's, it's more of a sliding scale rather than one thing being completely different from another. And indeed, there are many ways in which we, we hallucinate. There's, it's not just drugs. The, the dream machine, this flickering light is one way. It's a very safe um, way to get some idea of what's going on. But, you know, even if you just look up at, I don't know what the weather's like in Vancouver today, but if it's not raining consistently as it always was when I was there, if there are these white, fluffy clouds, you know, people often see faces in clouds. And that's a kind of hallucination, too. We know they're not really there, but our brains are just throwing out these predictions of faces into the world and seeing where they stick. Hmm. Well, it's a, I hate to break it to you. It's a beautiful sunny day. So you've, you've come during the rainy <laughs> seasons, but it is a gorgeous weather right now. Um, how do we use this then? Or how do you see this being applied to, to everyday life, whether it's a, a medical treatment or, or getting a better understanding? How can we benefit by learning more about this? I think there are many ways this is really relevant to our everyday lives. Uh, there's a te- the tendency we all have just to assume that how things seem to us in our daily experience is actually how they are. And just recognizing that the way we experience things, whether it's the color of, you know, of a car across the road or whether it's an emotion in somebody we're talking to, that's not necessarily the way things actually are. That's our own brain's best guess of what's going on. And we're all different and sometimes we can be wrong. And just recognizing that our perception is, is it's indirect. It's always an interpretation that opens a little space in our everyday lives that we can work with, maybe change things, change how we respond, change how we respond even to our own emotions. And then in, in medicine, there's a lot of excitement these days about the potential of psychedelics to treat depression. I think that's, it is exciting. I don't think it's quite as exciting as sometimes we hear. 
But these things might work because they kind of break the cycles. They break the perceptual habits that we fall into, where, again, we assume how things seem is how they really are. And psychedelics can, the term they often use, is shake the snow globe. It, it gives us the opportunity to, to learn how to see and experience things slightly differently. One of the things we're excited about is the potential of the, the dream machine to do something similar. In fact, out of the 40,000 people that came through, and we didn't say anything that it would have any benefit at all, but a large number of people told us that it really helped them with, with feeling better, you know, lessening symptoms of depression, of anxiety. And I think probably through the same mechanism that this recognition that we, we generate our own experienced worlds can be really helpful in breaking some of these cycles. And uh, Neil, can you talk, us, uh, talk to us just uh, briefly as well? You have another project that you're working on, Perception Senses. What is this going to do? That's right. So this is something I'm very excited about at the moment. As I mentioned, in, in the Dream Machine, everybody has a different experience, and it's quite remarkable how different they can be. But this is, this is happening all the time. It's not just in the Dream Machine. You know, just as we all differ on the outside in, in skin color and accent, maybe, and, and body shape, you know, we all have different brains, so we're all going to be different on the inside, too. Yeah, you're listening. Do you remember there was that photo of a dress a few years ago yes. that half the world saw? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> everybody remembers that. And it was fascinating because it's the same photo. And it really, for a brief moment, the whole world was aware that they could see the same thing differently, that we live in perceptual echo chambers, just as we live in social media echo chambers. Now, the perception census is a big, ambitious attempt to learn a lot more about how we do each experience the world in our own unique way. It's, it's something anyone can take part in. All you need is a computer and your own computer at home is fine. And it's a series of little fun, interactive illusions and exercises, little surveys that are allowing us for the first time to paint a picture of this wonderful diversity of mind as well as diversity of, of body. So we've already had about 25,000 people take part from, from over 100 countries. But we're really inviting as many people as possible to do this. It's fun. You'll learn something as, about your own ways of perceiving the world too. And, and together, we're going to I think, make a major advance in our understanding about how unique we, we all are. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing to learn about in science, but it's a wonderful thing to recognize for each of us individually as well. All right. Uh, Anil Seth, thank you so much for joining the show this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time with our four-hour weekly check-in with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning to you. Good morning. Lots to talk about south of the border, at least from where I am. Let's start with Donald Trump. And there are some new, a new tape where he's talking or we hear him talking about classified documents. Yeah, uh, this is a big deal, uh, and it kind of matches reporting that came out uh, more than a year ago in that some of the classified documents that had been found at Mar-a-Lago may have been linked to uh, a situation having to do with an attack on Iran. And according to this tape, which Global hasn't heard and actually no network has heard, it's just been kind of, um, you know, verbated by people who are familiar with it. Donald Trump acknowledges that he did hold on to uh, Pentagon documents about Iran, uh, which 
really speaks to you know what could be a a you know an understanding by the former president that he did have classified material in his possession after his time in the White House, and this really could serve as more fuel for the fire that uh, is burning with the special counsel, which could potentially be looking at potential indictments here as they wrap up the investigation. Is anyone really surprised by this tape or by this revelation? Well, I mean, look, there are people from within the, you know, outer orbit of the former president who have been concerned over the fact that there have been so many classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago, uh, you know, and, and to say, look, you know, the fact that there may be something on Iran is not out of the, um, you know, realm of possibility here, given the fact that such a trove of documents had been found not only in the residence at Mar-a-Lago, but also in storage rooms and in the former president's office. I don't know how much of a surprise it would be. I do think it is is uh, important, though, the fact that the special counsel does have access to this tape, likely did play it potentially for the jury. And if indictments are coming down, this could simply uh, add to the pressure that is being put on the former president for what could potentially be an incredibly dangerous legal path forward. All right, let's talk about the current president now and the footage. I know a lot of people have seen Joe Biden fell down. He made a bit of a joke about it. How big of a deal is this? Yeah, look, he made a joke. Uh, he was he was giving a commencement speech in Colorado and he tripped on the stage, uh, reportedly tripping over a sandbag that was on the stage in and around the podium. He made the joke that he had been sandbagged when he left uh, Marine One landing back at the White House. Uh, but this does, you know, it, it has sparked a conversation here because if he falls and when he has fallen, and this has happened in the past, whether it's on ground or walking up the stairs into Air Force One, there is the concern here because he's 80 years old and he's not going to get younger especially if he's back in the White House, so that this does spark that conversation. Is age a factor for somebody running for president? Yes, anybody can trip and fall, but the ramifications and, and the medical impact and the outcomes that can follow a fall for somebody of an advanced age can be problematic. So yes, this has sparked conversation. Even former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has gone on the record to say it's a concern uh, for anybody when they fall, but noted that Biden's age is of double concern here. So he'll brush it off. His aides, the White House, will brush it off. But this will become a talking point and could become a talking point for Republicans. Exactly, especially when when you see that and so many people uh, saw that footage and are talking about it. Uh, Let's talk about artificial intelligence now. And this is a a, a very concerning story. And I know there's there's some denial that this even happened. But the reports are that a U.S. military drone being controlled by AI actually turned on its operator. Yeah, and, and I think that it's important to come out with the denial first. Uh, the Department of the Air Force um, ha- has pushed back on this to say that, you know, the information from this reporting is erroneous. They're saying that this is linked to um, context of conversation from a colonel that was involved with this. But ultimately, the story suggests that during a simulation uh, where a commander had uh, a military drone, an attack drone, uh, that he was operating it to have it attack a target. And when the commander had switched the command, to have it attack something else, the reporting suggests that the drone then turned on the commander in a simulated session and attacked the commander because he was trying to get the drone to do something else and it had a target, so it went after what was getting in the way of it completing its target, and then when the simulated control tower uh, was telling it to do something else, it then 
in a simulation, attacked the control tower. Now, again, Air Force officials are saying, look, this did not happen. But it is kind of important here, given that in the last couple of weeks, we've heard from some of the heavy hitters, especially from the founders of things like ChatGPT, uh, in that artificial intelligence could pose a threat in the future, including the potential for human extinction here, because there's a risk that it outsmarts humans. So, you know, either, whether this was true or not, it is another conversation that is the is technology getting too advanced for people to now control that technology. Right, because even in a simulation situation, it's pretty frightening to think that that could happen. And like you said, this is kind of the slippery slope. It is certainly one of the big concerns about AI. Yeah, absolutely it is. And and I think that, you know, again, with the denials that are coming from the Air Force, if this happened to have been an actual situation, say this was a drone that was, you know, partaking in something like the war in Ukraine or, or was monitoring the seas around uh, Taiwan, if a drone happened to, you know, turn on its operator or, or do something that was outside of its target, what is the fallout from that going to be? And do we wind up with some kind of escalatory situation uh, where the drone has now, you know, put its host country in some kind of jeopardy. These are serious questions that you can imagine lawmakers are going to want answers on. And Reggie, wanted to check in with you as well on the deal regarding the debt ceiling in the United States. Obviously not everybody pleased with this, but where do things go from here? So ultimately, the deal is done. Uh, the House passed this uh, earlier in the week with broad, moderate support from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and then it went to the Senate. And there was a real risk here that this was going to run into kind of procedural issues and there would be some senators trying to slow it down. Ultimately, amendments kind of went through and failed. Leadership in the Senate said, let's get this done. And it was passed last night within a 24-hour time frame. It goes to the president for a signature. He's set to actually make an address to the nation tonight to explain the path forward and how good this is for America. And ultimately, the debt ceiling is not going to be uh, an issue. There will be no collapse and America will move forward. And it will move forward for the next couple of years because a part of this deal is they will have just unlimited room to stretch the debt ceiling into next year and election year as well. So the American people are going to benefit from this. Both sides will claim that they won but also made concessions. But it raises a question here. Does this broker a new era in Washington of bipartisanship where you can get both sides of the aisle to work together? Or was this simply a one-off? All right. Uh, certainly a lot happening in the U.S. Reggie, we'll leave it there. But thanks as always. Happy Friday. This is Mornings with Simi. Starting in 2025, commercial photographers will need to pay for a permit if they are taking photos in any of the parks that fall within the Metro Vancouver Regional Park System. Joining us now to talk a bit more about why this is coming in is Jeremy Plotkin, Supervisor of Visitor Services with Metro Vancouver Parks. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning. You're welcome. Good morning. Uh, why is this change being made, and why is this $400 fee coming in? Uh, so, uh, Metro Vancouver Re- Regional Park System protects uh, a range of diverse natural habitats, uh, and we're there so visitors can enjoy and connect with nature. Uh, and in order to protect the environment and improve the visitor experience, Metro Vancouver is asking commercial photographers, uh, starting with Campbell Valley Regional Park, and we hope to um, move this out to all of our regional parks, uh, to apply for a permit and follow the guidelines. Uh, and the reason is that staff have observed some photographers uh, going off trail, uh, harassing wildlife, disturbing the public with props, um, blocking trails, setting up in desirable locations, and scheduling clients on a rotating basis. 
Um, and that seems to prevent the other visitors from visiting that area of the regional park to enjoy it. Uh, we also have issues with wedding parties uh, and party buses that are using the park for photography, um, causing issues with parking and also with alcohol. Uh, so the goal is to have the commercial photographers uh, and their clients abide by our bylaw and encourage proper etiquette while in regional parks. Uh, so how big of a problem is this? How, have you had complaints coming in or how often is this happening? Yeah, so uh, last year uh, staff had uh, at least 10 formal complaints from the public uh, saying, why aren't you doing anything about this? Uh, and also um, staff has observed the photographer's um, Yeah, setting up trail in places that are disturbing uh, nesting wildlife, uh, nesting birds. Um, They they just don't know um, often. They'll also be setting up next to horse trails, setting up props, and and they're just not sure what might spook a horse or not. Um, So we've had both the complaints from the public and the staff noticing this as well. So how is a $400 permit, though, going to stop that? If somebody is setting up props or going into the park to use it for a commercial shoot and using the park as a background, are they not still going to be doing that, only they'll be doing it after they've paid the $400 fee? Uh, Well, we've got some guidelines and conditions of use. So part of the application is they will read the guidelines and and initial that they understand uh, the proper etiquette. Uh, And there's a big educational component with this as well. So park staff are going around talking with photographers, uh, letting them know the new requirements, letting them know the guidelines. Uh, they're, they're taking time to answer any of their questions uh, and trying to get photographers to better understand the issue. Um, so we're working closely with photographers, finding out what they need. Um, we might end up um, mowing some areas in the grass that are, are safer for them to use uh, to meet their needs. Um, we're, we're really focusing on education and uh, collaboration and voluntary compliance. Um, we're encouraging them to abide by our bylaws. It seems like a cash grab, though, to charge somebody $400 to use a park space that is supposed to be open to all residents and for people to use. It feels like this is a bit of a cash grab that's also penalizing photographers who aren't doing any of the things that you mentioned. Uh we, we require all businesses and regional parks to apply for permit, and there's a cost associated with that. Uh, the money goes towards supporting the administrative process of the permits um, and any related printed documentation or science for education. Um, it's, it's a fairly low amount. It's good for one year. So once you pay your $400, you can take as many photos as you want and use the park as much as you'd like for a year. Um, and this is only for commercial photographers, so uh, anybody else that is just taking photos in the park does not need to apply for a permit. Um, and basically, uh, it's their, their studio. We're letting them use their park as their studio for the, for the year. What about a commercial photographer, though, who might just be taking a walk in the park, sees a great shot maybe of an eagle or sees something, isn't doing a big shoot like ones that you've described? Is that person supposed to be paying $400 a year to to do that as well, to take a photo that they might end up selling? Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, we're, it's, it's, we're looking for voluntary compliance here. Um, so people can uh, you know, decide if they're a commercial photographer or not. Um, we do have a definition of commercial photography in our bylaw. So it means if you're using your camera um, or any other device to capture images that are intended to be sold for a commercial purpose, uh, which includes for hire photography, 
wedding photography, stock photography, or photography using props. So those are the main uh, commercial photographers that we're looking for. Um, and again, we're, we're not uh, going around ticketing people or harassing people. We're really focusing on education uh, and letting people know the issues that we're having in the park and that we do have a permit process in place. And so you said it's voluntary compliance. So what happens then if you do come across a commercial shoot with a commercial photographer who doesn't have the permit? Uh, we'll just provide them with the information and education um, about some of the issues that we're having. And we've got a, a guidelines document that we're handing out to everybody. So commercial photographers or non-commercial photographers that just remind people of the, the proper etiquette that they should be following in the park. Right. So there's no penalty, though? It's not like you get a fine or you get some kind of punishment? No, we're not uh, going through that uh, compliance route yet. Right. So what would be the incentive then to buy to spend $400 on a permit if there's no repercussions for not having a permit? Uh, we're hoping for, uh, again, this voluntary compliance and a collaborative approach. When park staff have been talking with photographers, most of them get it. Most of them are like, oh, that makes sense. Um, we do have other businesses that operate in regional parks, and all of them are also required to pay for a permit. We haven't had any people pushing back on that. We've got nature educators. We've got equestrian tours. We've got commercial dog walkers. We've got commercial first aid um, all of them understand that if they're operating a business in the regional park, um, there's there's a price for that. It's a it's a nominal fee. The four hundred dollars is is quite a low fee when you've got a year of um, of business that you can do. All right, Jeremy, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. This is mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the weather forecast, hot weather for the next few days, hot and dry. So it's a good time to remind people the uh, yeses and nos when it comes to pets in your vehicles. And joining us now to do that is Eileen Drever, BC SPCA spokesperson. Eileen, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome, and good uh, sunny morning to you. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful outside. Uh, let's start with something that's been talked about recently, and that is dogs in the backs of pickups, and something I think that used to happen a whole lot more than it does now. But is this still something that you see? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And unfortunately, even if dogs are tethered in the back of a pickup truck, it presents a danger not, not only to the dog but to other drivers because it is a distraction. Um, they could be they could easily slip off, jump out, or or be and be dragged. So we recommend that you secure your pet in a crate, and the crate has to be secured as well. And preferably, it would be in 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 your vehicle, not in the cargo area. Right. Okay. Is it is it actually illegal though? As far as uh, th- there will be people hearing this, going, well, hold on a second. My dog uh, is uh, comfortable in the back, loves being in the back of the truck. But is it actually illegal to do that? Yes, it's illegal under the uh, Motor Vehicle Act as well as the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, and it's considered an unsafe load under the Motor Vehicle Act, and it's uh, I, it's not worth it. It really, truly is not worth it. I've seen so many animals, and these individuals loved their animals, but the uh, some have died as a result. And if you're going to travel with them, put them in the vehicle, not outside. 
All right. And you mentioned, so just to, to clarify, though, you mentioned, too, if, if they're in a crate and the crate is secured in the cargo area of a truck, that's yes. technically okay. But then you also want to take into account the weather and how hot it is and that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a survey took place um, a few years ago, and it was amazing how many people had stated that in the summertime they take their, their pets with them. And um, only about 49% uh, secured their animals. They said that they, well, what I should say is some had them in the back of the vehicle, on in the vehicle. Some had them in crates in the vehicle. And a lot, and in fact, let me see, it says, so dog guardians, 55% always used a restraint. And it's funny because cat guardians, 87% always use a restraint. So um, we, we know you shouldn't leave your cat loose in your vehicle because they could injure you or they could injure themselves. And we don't think about dogs injuring themselves. If you come to a sudden stop, the animal is going to be projected in the vehicle. So it's safer to have them secured in a crate, and the crate is secured, either with a restraint seatbelt, or you can actually get dog seatbelts. So you, you should look out, out for one of those. Right. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, uh, an acquaintance that happened, uh, the dog was actually with a dog sitter being taken, I think going to the park or something, but exactly that. It was, uh, I don't know if it was an actual crash, but she had to stop very, very quickly. And unfortunately the dog died because the dog did kind of get, got sent, got kind of flown through the vehicle. So it can be very traumatic and very, very sad. And it can be preventable. It doesn't need to happen. Um, and, and can I also mention, because the weather's warming up again, please do not leave your dogs in the vehicles. That it can take 10 minutes for your animal to perish in a vehicle. So don't leave them in the vehicles. Have you had many complaints? I know we talked about this not too, too long ago, but have you had many complaints already since we've seen such hot weather in May and now into June of people leaving uh, pets in vehicles? Unfortunately, um, would you believe it? Yes. Um, we, it's just unbelievable. No matter, no matter how often people talk about it, people will, individuals will still leave their animals in the vehicle. And they say, well, it can leave it for a few minutes. Something can happen in a few minutes can turn into maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. And again, your animal can perish in that time. And you mentioned as well that people do like to take their pets with them. If you're going on a road trip, you're going on vacation, and hopefully people know if their pets are comfortable in the vehicle and are okay having a longer road trip, that kind of thing. Are you seeing more of that, though, people looking more for pet-friendly accommodation and finding ways to be able to take their pets with them? Yes, we are, and and that's wonderful because it shows that the, their pet is a member of their family. Um, and, and, yes, we have seen people, a lot of people take their animals with them, just make sure that your animal has either a microchip or some form of identification. You can actually go to our website and register your pet with a BC pet registry, just in case they escape from you. Is it more likely in a scenario like that, given that the pet is in a different environment or maybe is a bit confused as to they got in the car in one place and suddenly they're, they're not back home? Exactly, yes. And, 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 you know, it can be very confusing for them. And they just want to be with their people. And if their people take off for a, for a wee while, they're, they're searching for them. So make sure that your information on your tag or on your microchip is up to date. 
That's uh, good advice uh, for sure. Uh, just going back quickly to animals, if they are being transported in a way, I, I remember too, there was that story a few years ago of the crate that was, it was attached, but it was attached to the back of a motorhome and it was flying down the freeway. And I, I know it was reported to the police because people driving next to it thought, well, that's not right. Uh, are there tickets or are there, is it a ticketable offense or do you know how many tickets are often given out for, for people that are transporting their animals in a way that's not? safe? No, Jill, I don't have that information. But in that particular case, that was an offence under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. That dog was in distress. Mm. So, uh, you know, the goal is not, again, I'm repeating myself, the goal is not to take people's animals away from them. We just want to try and educate people. And thank you uh, for allowing us this opportunity on your show. But please be mindful and um, go to our website if you have any questions and we can try and help you out. I'd also like to say if you do see an animal being transported in the back of a vehicle and it's not secured, please contact our animal helpline at 1-855-622-7722 or even call call the local police. Take uh, uh, make the take a, a note of the model of the vehicle and the make description of the dog and the plate number, and then contact us as soon as possible. All right, good advice, especially as we are in for another stretch of hot, dry weather. Eileen, thank you so much as always for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. We appreciate it. This is mornings with Simi. Well, let's check in with the coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Sartini. Vanny, good morning to you. Good morning, Gilles. How are you? Very well. How about you? Very good. Very good. Well, yeah. I would imagine so. That game on uh, Wednesday, uh, that was a pretty wild game. Yeah, it was uh, like a uh, fireworks game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, uh, um, I would say, crazy first half. We were 2-2, probably... Um, the other team, Houston, even did better than us the first half. But uh, we have to be honest, our goalkeeper did a very good job. And, and then in the second half, we played very, very well. And we scored a lot of goals. And uh, I think we set the record. This is the first time that we scored six goals in MLS. We won 6-2. So, yeah, nice, uh, nice way to... To start the week, I would say. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a high game or a high score for a, for a soccer game. And uh, yeah. I, I heard as well that so multiple records set during this game, but also what was it, the fastest goal from the start of the half? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, uh, we did something that is really unusual. We scored uh, in, uh, in both halves in the first minute in the, in the, uh, after 15 seconds in the first half and after 10 seconds in the second half. So, you know, uh, that would be fantastic if it happened tomorrow too. But it's a little, uh, it's, uh, we know that it's going to be very hard. <laughs> right. I would imagine, though, coming off the energy of the game on Wednesday and getting ready for tomorrow night's game, uh, like you said, you kind of want to keep that going. Uh, but knowing that uh, Wednesday, games like Wednesday's game don't happen all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, well, there's a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, of course, now uh, everyone is confident. Uh, we know that tomorrow we have this game with Kansas City that is very important. Uh, but uh, uh, sometimes you need to act like, uh, you know, the one who balances everything. So when everyone is very excited, you need to bring them on on the ground and uh, the other way around. The week before, after a loss in St. Louis where Everyone was a little, I would say, moody, and uh, I had to, you know, remind them that, that uh, we actually were doing a good job. So 
bringing them up. So that's uh, kind of uh, of my job sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so that game, so tomorrow night at 7.30, and then that all leads up as well, the Canadian Championship final on Wednesday and uh, playing CF Montreal. Sounds like it's going to be a pretty uh, big party atmosphere for that game as well. Yeah, 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 no, that's, um, we have to be honest, it's uh, probably, it starts like now, the, the, the most important five days of the, of the season with a very important league game Saturday, but and of course the most important game of the season so far is the final of the Canadian Championship on Wednesday. Uh, we hope that it's going to be there's going to be a lot of people. Well, actually, I know that the fans will respond, and even if it's a Wednesday night, they will come. Last year it was the same. We we can do something that we never did before, winning the trophy back to back two years in a row. So that would be for sure an historic moment for for the club and for the city, and hopefully we're going to achieve it. And, uh, Vanny, before you go, Sedin uh, is a name that many people are familiar yeah. with in yeah. uh, BC. And uh, what what is the connection with a Sedin and your team? Yeah, you know, Walter um, is like it. <clears throat> it's Walter uh, uh, Sedin is one of the players of our academy, of our under-17, and he's a very good player. And, uh, and of course, uh, is the son of one of the Sedins, the legend of the uh, of the Canucks, and uh, you know that's the I would say the connection that uh, that uh, remarked the connection not only between uh, the Sedin and, and the city, but also with hockey and soccer. And at the end, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're different sports, but uh, uh, they're they're actually pretty similar. So hopefully, they're going to be a dynasty of Sedin also in soccer, not only not only in uh, in uh, like like there was in in hockey before, and uh, we can uh, continue to have uh, uh, the name of the city and the cities at the top level for the future. All right, sounds good, Vanny. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye, bye, Joe.